Now, most people, when you approach the book of Amos, they know Amos basically from a few statements that he makes over in chapter number 7. And uh, I'll go ahead and, and read for you what they said, uh, what Amos says. He, uh, The priest of Bethel, by the name of Amaziah, goes to him and begins to launch some accusations at him, tell him to go home. In verse 14, then answered Amos and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was an herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said unto me, Go, prophesy unto my people Israel. Most people, that's really all they know about the book of Amos, is that he was a farmer, uh, that he was a gatherer of sycamore fruit, and that God called him. Certainly there is a great truth there. It wouldn't be in the word of God if there wasn't. But that's not all there is to the book of Amos. The book of Amos is not really about Amos at all. His name uh, is, is the title of the book because he was the prophet through whom the Lord gave this. Uh, but just like every book of the Bible, uh, the book of Amos is about the Lord. It tells us something of his characteristic, something of his person, and uh, it's a valuable book to study and to read. Uh, but Stephen, grab me one of those, the charts. I didn't grab one. It's kind of there at the back. Uh, not the, but the chart. You'll see it there. And, uh, I want us to say a word about the time in which Amos, uh, prophesied. Amos was a contemporary of Hosea. I've always thought it was a beautiful truth that the book of Amos and the book of Hosea are hand in hand in the nation of Israel. And you say, well, why is that, preacher? Because the book of Hosea is, is sort of sporadic. Imagine, if you will, uh, a husband, just as Hosea was, pleading towards an idolatrous wife, just like Gomer was. Uh, you can imagine the passion and the pathos that that would evoke. You, you can imagine that maybe his thoughts would be a little bit scattered, and he would just be pouring his heart out towards his bride, trying to bring her home. And that's how the book of Hosea is. But the book of Amos is not that way. The book of Amos is sort of cold, methodical, calculated. It is a series of causes and consequences. And so it's almost as though God is trying to evoke with the book of Amos his sure judgment and justice, that he is a holy God, that he will not tolerate sin, and that he must judge it. But with the book of Hosea, he pleads for Israel. It's almost as though Amos preaches from the head, and Hosea preaches from the heart. And so it's a beautiful thing that God had these two men prophesying at the same time. They prophesied in the uh, days of Uzziah, what the first verse says. In fact, let's just read the first uh, verse of the book of Amos. The words of Amos, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, we learn a few things about Amos just right off the bat. One, we learn his occupation. He was a herdman. He was a farmhand. He, he was sort of a rugged individual. Uh, we learn that he was from Tekoa, a little village on the edge of the wilderness of Judea, uh, about 12 miles south of Jerusalem. We also learn that he is not a native to the area that he's going to minister to. He's an outsider. Uh, we also learned that it was during the days of Uzziah, so this would have been very contemporary with Hosea as well as with Isaiah. Uh, Uzziah in Judah was probably one of the greatest kings uh, that Judah had after the two, uh, the, the twelve tribes split into two nations. But his message and his ministry is not to Judah. <laughs> his message and his ministry primarily is to Israel. He will pronounce some judgment on Judah. But primarily his ministry is to Israel, the northern ten tribes. I want to read this to you, and you can see it on the back of your your uh, page there. Um, <clears throat> under the introduction there, I have all these paragraphs. Now, that looks like a lot. <clears throat> and as I, as I read and as I prayed about what, what the Lord wanted to say here, I couldn't get away from adding all of these paragraphs. I've told you before I don't write these. I get these uh, from other sources. But... I tried to weed out as much as I could. This is vastly more than we have read uh, as far as an introduction for Jonah or for Job. But I just couldn't get away from everything that was said in this. And maybe it's because the book of Amos is so unfamiliar to us. But I believe after we read this, you'll have somewhat of an understanding of the context. Now, I want you to read along with me silently as I read aloud. There were only about 30 or 40 years between the ministries of Elisha and Amos. 
But in that short span of time, the whole world changed. A new superpower, Assyria, stalked onto the international stage. Rapacious, strong, and cruel, Assyria was as different from Egypt as night is from day. Egypt, the bumbling, benevolent giant of the south, had dominated world affairs from remotest antiquity. The Egyptians were peace-loving people and had left other countries alone, except when new vigorous dynasties eager for fame and fortune came into power. But the Assyrians, who were about to threaten the Middle East, were driven by a lust for conquest and a thirst for blood. They were more ruthless and relentless than all who had gone before. With the Assyrian star rising in the northern sky, it was imperative that voices ring out loud and clear to call Israel and Judah back to God. Moreover, since exile was certain if national repentance was not achieved, it was essential that God's messages be written down. A new breed of prophets was needed, so God raised up the writing prophets. The miracle-working prophets, Elijah and Elisha, had pointed men to God's works. The new breed performed no miracles. Instead, they pointed men to God's word. When the first of the minor prophets appeared like new stars in the prophetic sky, the Hebrews did not even know it was getting dark. Their kings were strong, capable, and vigorous. Amos preached to a generation that had grown up never knowing defeat. Surrounding kingdoms such as Syria, Philistia, Ammon, Moab, and Edom had been put in their place, and the borders of Israel and Judah were as secure as they had been in the days of David and Solomon. However, both nations were ill-equipped to face the Assyrian threat. Formerly, the Hebrews had been fighting farmers, but they had experienced a cultural revolution. Now they were citified, sophisticated, worldly-wise, cultured, proud, and they imagined safe. They had taken a giant step from an agricultural economy to an urban form of life. The northern kingdom of Israel was particularly vulnerable during the days of the early minor prophets. The national religion was a corruption of the true faith that was commenced with Abraham, codified by Moses, and celebrated by David. Jeroboam's idolatrous cult was deeply entrenched among the ten tribes. The worship of a golden calf was lavishly supported by the throne and served by an apostate priesthood. Major idolatrous shrines loathed by Jehovah existed at Dan, Gilgal, Tabor, Carmel, and Penuel. The crafty Jeroboam had capitalized on sites that would evoke sacred memories. For example, a pagan temple now stood at Bethel, where heaven had come down and filled the souls of Abraham and Jacob. To such a society came Amos with his own brand of thunder. Amos was a rustic from that wild stretch of land way down south known as the wilderness of Judah. He was a herdsman, shepherd, and gatherer of sycamore fruit. In other words, a farmhand. What this country boy saw when he went to Bethel and Samaria made his blood boil. He had heard about the calf worship of the Israelites for years, and now he saw it himself. Worse than that, he saw people ensnared in all the vileness of the Canaanite nature cults. The immorality, drunkenness, and gross idolatry filled his soul with outrage. Deeply stirred, he denounced what he saw with an eloquence that drew its inspiration from farm, forest, and field. Wild beasts, starry skies, and threatening storms were the images of his wrath. Try to imagine an untutored lad, fresh from the hills, storming through the fashionable clubs of Washington, and with rude speech denouncing in God's name the lifestyle of the urban elite. Such was Amos. I didn't have to add this last line, but it made me laugh, so I did. <laughs> The society ladies of Samaria must have shuddered when he called them cows, ye kind of Bashan. Do you get the picture? Israel had grown soft and had grown weak. There are two basic leaps as far as their culture was concerned. They went in the days of Noah, or of Moses, excuse me, uh, through into the days of Joshua. They went from a nomadic people to an agricultural people. And in the days of the early minor prophets, they went again from an agricultural people to an urban form of life. No longer is the substance of Israel's uh, livelihood sustained by little villages and little huts uh, scattered across the countryside. Now big urban metropolises are populating uh, the nation of Israel. And here comes Amos wandering up from a little village and a little hut. Coming in, you can imagine, there's no finery about him, there's no elegance about him, but there is a divine eloquence about him. As he comes into this setting, as he sees what's taking place in Bethel and Dan and in Samaria, 
And with rage and righteous indignation, the Spirit of God moves him to begin to denounce what's taking place. You find an interesting dynamic uh, in these first few chapters. And I'll tell you what I'm going to do, and it's going to take just a few minutes, but I think we need to do it. Let's read through the first two chapters of the book of Amos. We're not going to read the rest of the book. We will read bits and pieces. But I want you to look at the first two chapters of the book of Amos. We'll begin at verse 2. We've already read verse 1. And he said, The Lord will roar from Zion. You remember that statement? Joel used a statement very similar. And utter his voice from Jerusalem. And the habitations of the shepherds shall mourn, and the top of Carmel shall wither. Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof because they have threshed Gilead with threshing instruments of iron. I want you to look down at verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Gaza, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have carried away captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. Look down at verse uh, number 9. Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Tyrus, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom and remembered not the brotherly covenant. Look down at verse 13. Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of the children of Ammon, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have ripped up the women with child of Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. We missed one. Look back at verse 11. I'm sorry, we missed one. Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Edom and for four... I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because he did pursue his brother with the sword, and did cast off all pity, and his anger did tear perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. You remember who the Edomites are, descendants of Esau. Look at verse number 1 of chapter 2. Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Moab, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom into line. Now look at verse 4. Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have despised the law of the Lord, and have not kept his commandments, and their lies caused them to err, after the which their fathers have walked. Verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. I'll go ahead and tell you that most people don't ever get past the first two chapters of the book of Amos. They get caught up in a Hebrew idiom that is used. You know what an idiom is. Uh, we use this terminology today, a figure of speech. For instance, if, if I was to say to you, uh, it's six of one, half a dozen of another. You understand what I mean. You don't take that as to be a literal statement, but you understand that I'm saying uh, that object A is just the same for all practical intents and purposes as object B. It's six of one, half a dozen of the other. Or we might say it makes no difference. Uh, idioms through the Bible are one of the most important things you can study because you'll totally miss what's being said if you don't understand them. This phrase, for three transgressions and for four, what God is saying is essentially this. For three, I would punish them. Certainly, for four, I will not turn away. As one writer put it, it was as though they had crossed in going from three to four. Maybe in three, God would have had mercy, but they have passed in going to four across God's invisible line between mercy and wrath. God is saying, I will not turn away the punishment because of what they've done. Or can I say it this way to use another idiom? Uh, three was bad enough. Four was the straw that broke the camel's back. That's what God is saying. But more important than the idiom that is used are the nations that are mentioned. Now, I've given you two outlines as I've done the past uh, two times that we've met, an elaborated outline. I feel the same way about these outlines that I have about the others. I like the elaborated one better, but for time's sake, we're going to follow the simple one. The theme of the first two chapters of the book of Amos is to look around and see God's judgment. Uh, we don't do that very much in this day that we live in. No. Uh, now, instead of men looking around and seeing uh, God judging sin, 
Instead, they look around and when they see judgment, they see it as a sin of God. The atheists, when a natural disaster happens, will inevitably shake their fist at the God that they don't believe in and say, why is not God just? Well, that's the wrong question. In fact, when we see judgment take place, the very thing we should think is, evidently God is just. People say, well, how is it fair that this happens to this group or that happens to that group? You know what we should say? We should look at it the way that our Lord did when they came to him and said, What about those Galileans on whom the Tower of Siloam fell? Were they wicked? Was that why that happened? The Lord said, You're looking at it from the wrong end of the telescope. What you ought to be asking is, Am I better than they are? If judgment came on them, then surely judgment is coming upon me. He said, You're not any better than them. Except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. There's an important truth in the six nations that are mentioned. Uh, there are two divisions in the first six nations. Actually, there are eight that are mentioned, but, but in the first six, there are two divisions. And I think this is very important. If you look in your second outline, it's denoted there. But the first three are those that are always considered as Gentile foreigners to the land of Israel. Damascus, which is representative not of Assyria, but of Syria, the kingdom of Syria. Also, Gaza, that was one of the chief Philistine cities. And Tyrus, a great Gentile seaside port city. Uh, most of us uh, will, will see Tyre and Sidon mentioned time and time again in Scripture. Sidon was close to it, and they were always viewed uh, as, as being sort of sister cities. The first place that God mentions his judgment, and by the way, there, there is a truth here, and I'm going to convey it. Most of you are thinking, now, wait a minute, preacher. I thought judgment begins first at the house of God. The judgment does begin first at the house of God. The truth that we see in this progression of nations is this. We have a tendency to think, if God loves me, he won't judge me. Now, is that what the Lord says about judgment? In fact, the book of Hebrews says, every son whom the Lord loveth, loveth he chasteneth. The truth is not that because the Lord loves me, He won't judge me. The truth is because the Lord loves me, He will judge me for my sin, because sin's a destructive and horrible and harmful thing. And so as God begins to denounce these Gentile cities, imagine, if you will, uh, maybe an arrow. This, I'm making this up off the top of my head, but maybe an arrow that is flying. God has already chosen a destination on the target. That target, as we see when we come down to the last nation that's mentioned, is Israel. His mind has already been made up. That's where he's firing his arrow. But along the way, that arrow is passing through nation after nation. It's not that God is choosing to judge them instead of Israel, but he's giving this truth. He's saying, if I will judge them whom I don't love, then you better believe I'll judge you whom I do love. He begins with three Gentile cities that basically have no connection uh, to the nation of Israel as far as their genetics are concerned. All three of these cities, uh, well, not all three. Damascus had been a perpetual enemy uh, of Israel. Syria had been. Uh, they were never, I guess if I can put it this way, they could never whoop Israel, but they were always there trying to pick a fight with them. All the way from the days of David. In fact, Adad was the king that waged war uh, with uh, David. And they began to adopt his name into their names. You see that oftentimes in, in uh, cultures in antiquity. All the way down to a man by the name of Ben-Hadad. Most of you will be familiar with that name as the Syrian who in the days of, uh, I believe that it was, oh, it's escaping me, what king. Uh, but uh, down later on in history began to give problems, I believe it was to Ahab. Uh, so that was the Syrians. They were a perpetual enemy. Gaza, the Philistines. We know that the Philistines were a perpetual enemy of the nation of Israel. We know that David slew their champion Goliath in the valley of Elah. But constantly and consistently they were an enemy of Israel. But Tyre is different. In fact, you'll remember that uh, Tyre contributed uh, some of the things to, to build in Israel. The king Hiram of, uh, of the kingdom of Tyre. There had been peaceful relations with Tyre for a lot of years, but evidently something had changed in that period of time. God says, I'm going to judge them. Now, three other Gentile, or maybe we could say pseudo-Gentile nations are mentioned. 
The first are uh, nations uh, that were always considered as Gentile foreigners. The next three are nations that were always considered genetic family to the nation of Israel. The first is Edom. Now, we know who Edom is. They're the descendants of Esau. In fact, uh, here in, oh, I don't know, four weeks or so, I believe, we'll study the book of Obadiah. And the book of Obadiah is totally occupied with pronouncing judgment upon the people of Edom. The bitterness that sprung up in the time of Esau, uh, to, it took root in his time. It sprung up. Many were defiled. That's what the book of Hebrews chapter 12 is talking about. There was a hatred between the Edomites and the Israelites all through their history. In fact, every time you find the Israelites being persecuted, the Edomites are there taking advantage of. In fact, twice in the chapter that we read, in uh, chapter number 1, the Edomites were the recipients of some violence that was perpetrated towards, or the beneficiaries, if you'd like that word better, the beneficiaries of the violence that was perpetrated towards Israel by some of these Gentile nations. God says, I'm going to do to the Edomites what they have done to you. The next is Ammon and Moab. Now, if you know your Bible history, you know who uh, the, the Ammonites and the Moabites are descendants of. They are descendants of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. And so they also are, in a sense, blood kin to the nation of Israel. Now, let's, let's unplug ourselves from this analytical moment. And let's imagine what it must have looked like in Bethel when Amos first showed up. He shows up and he says, listen carefully, the Lord is going to judge Syria and judge Damascus. They probably said, well, good, glad to hear it. Great message, Amos. Back to the Sunday morning, they said, that boy preaching this good message. And then he says, next are the Philistines and their grand city of Gaza. They say, boy, that man, that's a load off my mind. They had it coming. Next is the great seaport of Tyre, and they're going to fall. Boy, that's good to hear. Boy, our economy will boom when we have control of that city. Then he says, don't forget the Edomites. God's hand will deal heavy with them. They say, well, that will end a bitter feud. There was sort of a Hatfield-McCoy thing going on anyway. Be good to get rid of them. Then the Ammonites and the Moabites. Boy, that's a relief to know we'll finally be rid of them. But then all of a sudden, things sort of hit home. He mentioned six Gentile nations. And then in verse number four, he says, Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. They may have started to sweat a little bit in knowing that God would judge his beloved Judah. I mean, if Israel is the the apple of his eye, then Judah is the very sweetest part of that apple. That's Zion. You understand. It was from that hill that the angel stopped the hand of Abraham from killing Isaac. It it was upon that hill that one day the Lord would be crucified. It's from that hill in Jerusalem that God will set up his millennial throne. No doubt they thought to themselves, if God will judge Judah, maybe we're next. But there may have been some glee and some happiness. In fact, they had set up a parallel idolatrous form of worship. And when you get into this portion of the Bible, when you hear Bethel mentioned, it's always a bad thing. Because in the days of Jeroboam the first, Jeroboam the son of Nebat, he was the one that led the revolution, split the kingdom away from Rehoboam the son of Solomon. Uh, they had no temple to worship at because Judah had the temple. Judah had Jerusalem. And so in Bethel, he sets up a pagan temple, and he sets up calf worship, much like what they had dabbled in when they were in the wilderness. He went even a step further and developed his own apostate priesthood. And listen to what he was doing very carefully. He was doing the same thing that the children of Israel did in the wilderness. Do you know that in the wilderness, everybody likes to think that in the wilderness they were trying to formulate a god, an Egyptian god. But that's not what your Bible says. They said this. They went to Aaron and said, make us a god that we can worship. And Aaron, uh, of course, gathers up all the earrings, the rings, the gold, everything. And he fashions, he lied to his brother Moses later. He said, when I threw it into the fire, it just came out as a cow. Uh, That sounds like the evolutionist, doesn't it? (laughs) Well, it didn't hold water then, just like it don't hold water now. Moses knew that's not what had happened. But Aaron said this. Aaron said, let us keep a feast unto Jehovah. 
it was not, listen carefully, it was not an atheistic religious structure, nor was it necessarily the worship of a false god. Rather, it was the false worship of the true God. Boy, if that don't hit home in the day that we live in, I don't know what does. You know what, you know what is taking Christendom by storm? It's not the worship of a false God. I mean, if you want to talk about, you know, Catholicism and, and the Pope, I mean, that, I, that's fine. You can make that application. But even that is, is not necessarily the worship of a false God. Rather, it's the false worship of the true God. It's idolatry wrapped in Christianity. It's a sort of hollowed out version of what the Word of God teaches. They take truths and they twist them and they turn them and they try to turn them into tools and instruments of enslaving mankind in a sort of will worship and salvation by works. This same sort of structure is what was taking place at Bethel. So no doubt they were probably to a degree happy to hear that Judah would be destroyed. Because as long as the temple stood in Jerusalem, there was always a risk of all t- 12 tribes uniting again under the banner of true worship. But then the final death blow comes. Amos is probably not very popular by the time you get down to verse number 6. Because he says, Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. I'm going to tell you where my carnal mind went. Is that okay? I mean, I'm, I'm honest enough to tell you. The, the thing that I immediately thought of when I thought of this scenario, anybody ever see Mr. Smith Goes to Washington? The old Jimmy Stewart movie? I know you have. Don't act like, I mean, hey, if you're, if you're too spiritual to admit you watched a black and white Jimmy Stewart movie, you need to leave, okay? Sure. We've all, she said it was on Wednesday night. Sure, most of us have seen. And Jimmy Stewart plays the wide-eyed, you know, uh, local representative that goes to Washington, and he's just shocked and disgusted by the political corruption. In a sort of twisted way, Amos is is sort of Mr. Smith going to Washington. He leaves the fields, he goes to Bethel, and it's worse than even he thought. And he begins to pronounce God's judgment upon them. He says, look around and see God's judgment. You can see, he goes on to describe it. He says that pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor. That, that's a language that describes at that time when people were in mourning, oftentimes they take dust and throw it up into the air on their head. What, what it says is they long for the poor to have to do that. Turn aside the way of the meek, and a man and his father will go in unto the same maid to profane my holy name. They lay themselves down upon clothes laid to pledge by every altar, and they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God, yet destroyed I the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was strong as the oaks, yet I destroyed his fruit from above and his roots from beneath. Also I brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you forty years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up of your sons prophets and of your young men Nazarites. Is it not even thus, O ye children of Israel, saith Lord? He says, I destroyed the Amorites who were stronger than you. Do you not think I can destroy you? I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I destroyed them for the same things that you're doing. I wonder how often we always like to talk about old time preachers. Let me tell you something. Most pulpits in this country could not handle old-time preachers. That's the truth. They'd run them out on a pole. I mean, it wouldn't take long at all. Some of you even remember a time uh, when you were growing up where, I mean, it wasn't uncommon for a preacher to get up and denounce somebody by name that's sitting in the congregation from the pulpit. I mean, that was the way it was. Maybe that's the way it ought to be. The Lord says, I brought you up out of Egypt. And you're committing the same sins that they commit. He says, I destroyed them, will I not destroy you? He goes on to describe, uh, he says, but you gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets, saying, prophesy not. People tried to stand against you, you wouldn't allow it. You tempted the Nazarites to break their vows, you tried to silence the voice of the prophets. Behold, I am pressed under you as a cart is pressed that is full of sheep. He says, I'm tired of propping you up while you sin. He goes on, we don't have time to deal with all of it, but he condemns 
Israel for their various sins. In chapter number 3, we have a shift in the tone. At first, he says to look around and see God's judgment. But in verse number 1 of chapter 3, he begins to tell them to look within and to see the corruption. He turns the spotlight of prophetic light upon their sins. He's not talking about uh, Damascus or Gaza or Tyre or Edom or Ammon or Moab or even Judah anymore. He says, Israel, this is about you now. And he preaches three messages. We won't have time to deal with all of it, but look at chapter number 3 and uh, look down at verse number 3. He asks some questions. The first message that he sets forth is this, that Israel's judgment is certain. You can imagine how they felt looking at this, this hick, this hayseed that's come in to pronounce doom to them. I'm sure they laughed. I'm sure they scoffed. I mean, remember, to them, they are they are in the midst of prosperity and lavishness. The kingdom is strong. Their borders are secure. Assyria doesn't seem like much of a threat. Everything's going well. And let me say this. There is a season in which sin is pleasurable. There is a time in which wickedness does prosper. Go through your Bible, and you'll see time and time again. Look in the, what the psalmist said. Over and over again, the psalmist laments the fact that wicked men are prosperous. That was the scene that Amos walked into. These are people that don't know they need God. These are people that don't want God. These are people that can't even see anything conceivably on the horizon that would make them turn to God. And Amos shows up saying there is judgment coming and you better turn to God. And they laugh and they mock. And he says in verse number 3, Can two walk together except they be agreed? Now most of you have heard that quoted, if not preached on, from the pulpit. There's a lot of applications to that verse. There's nothing wrong with making applications with it. But this is what he's saying. He's saying, I made a covenant with you when you came out of Egypt that if you would follow my my commands and be obedient, I would walk with you in a way that I walk with no other nation. I would be right there beside you. I'd fight your battles. I'd go in before you. I'd drive out your enemies. And here we are, and we have walked side by side. But what kind of walk has it been? Uh, my little boy is now starting to walk. Everybody warned me I should have broke his legs, but I didn't. And now we're paying for it. And uh, let me just say that two can't walk together except to be agreed. I'll grab that little hand in mine. He's amazingly strong. And I'll grab that little hand in mine and I'll say, all right, we got to walk. We were walking into a restaurant yesterday after we got, uh, after the morning service and, and it had two entrances, you know, one for going in, one for coming out. And uh, as we're trying to go in, somebody else is coming out and, and we came to an impasse because he wanted to go in the wrong door. I wanted to go in the right door. How can two walk together except to be agreed? God's saying, I've walked with you and walked with you, but it's been a constant struggle. Every time that we would be walking together in unity, you'd be drawn away into idolatry. I've had through chastening, through punishment, through judgment to drag you back. Amos is saying this, you know you're not right with God, and you know God won't walk with you while you're not right with God. He then asks the second question, will a lion roar in the forest when he hath no prey? Now don't, don't get caught up in, in, in the imagery, it's a practical question. If a lion is stalking his prey, is he going to roar before he's captured his prey? No, he roars only when he has captured it. Amos says this, God's not just making noise. He's roaring because he's captured his prey. Judgment is coming and God's giving you a warning. Yes, another question. Uh, well, he goes on, he says, will a young lion cry out of his den if he have taken nothing. Then he says, can a bird fall in a snare upon the earth where there is no gin for him? He's saying, is a bird going to be trapped where there's no trap? Saying, God's not going to warn you unless there's a danger. And God's not going to tell you there's a danger unless there is a danger. Boy, that's simple, isn't it? But I wish we could all, me more than you, get a hold of that truth. God doesn't say no just because he likes to say no. God doesn't condemn sin just because he wants to ruin our good time. He warns us because there is a danger. He says this, Shall one take up a snare from the earth and have taken nothing at all? The trap doesn't spring, and the trapper does not pick up the, 
the trap unless something is caught in it. What he is saying is, God sent me for a reason. Verse number 6 says, Shall a trumpet be blown in the city, and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in a city, and the Lord hath not done it? The One of the commentators I read had grown up, uh, was a young boy during World War II in Britain. And he mentioned the terror that would, would grip them when they heard the air raid sirens in the middle of the night. You remember during, uh, you know, the, the blitzkrieg that took place, they were bombing every single night. And they get laid down and they just get comfortable and they drift off to sleep. And all of a sudden the trumpet would blow, the air raid would sound, jar them out of bed and they would run for shelter. In that same way, the trumpet was used in ancient Israel to alert those that were nearby that judgment, that, that danger was coming. Amos says, God's blowing a trumpet for a reason. And then he says this, notice it. Shall there be evil in a city, and the Lord hath not done it? Now remember as you read your Bible that, that the word evil does not always mean moral evil. Many times it does. In fact, I'd say most of the time that it does. Sometimes, though, it deals with just circumstantial evil. Well, we might say it like this. I've had a bad day. You ever said that before? You may have said it today. I've had a bad day. We don't mean I've done bad on this day. I've done evil. What we mean is this has been a dark day. This has been a rough day. This has been a tough time. I've had a bad day. In the same way he's saying if evil comes, if tragedy comes, if trial comes, has the Lord not been over that? Has he not had a hand in that? God's on his throne. He's saying this. The war is coming, and don't think that God didn't send it. Judgment is coming. Message number two, look at chapter number four. And by the way, you can go all the way through, and there's much to read there. Verse 12 is particularly interesting as he talks about how the Assyrians will leave nothing behind. But in chapter number four, we see Israel's sins denounced. Hear this word. This is where he calls them cows. <laughs> Hear this word, ye kind of Bashan, that are in the mountain of Samaria which oppress the poor, which crush the needy, which say to their masters, Bring and let us drink. The Lord God hath sworn by his holiness that, lo, the day shall come upon you that he will take you away with hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. Ye shall go out at the breaches, every cow at that which is before her. Ye shall cast them into the palace, saith the Lord. He's saying you're going to be driven out of this city like cattle are driven through a gate. You'll flood out of this city. Samaria was sort of a stronghold, situated in the wilderness upon a, a, a mountainside, or upon a, a lone mountain, rather. Uh, it, it was a really fortified place. Anybody that's a military strategist notes the number one rule is get the high ground. Samaria had the high ground. The Lord says, you think you're okay because you've got the high ground. Everything looks good now. Your walls are fortified. Everything looks okay. But one of these days, God is going to drive you out like cattle running from a storm out of the gate. And you're going to flee for your lives. Come to Bethel. This is sort of God's sarcasm. Boy, you know we've got a sarcastic God. If anybody ever tells you it's unkind to be sarcastic, you take them to 1 Kings chapter number 17 and 18. You let them hear what Elijah said about idolatry. God employs sarcasm here. He says, come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgression and bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes after three years and offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven and proclaim and publish the free offerings. For this like of you, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord God. He says, when trouble comes, go running to Bethel. See if Bethel will save you. Go running to your false gods. See if they'll save you. It says, in the meantime, just keep multiplying transgression after transgression. Keep sinning. It's only going to get worse. Let me tell you something. We have a loving God. And, and the Lord's going to go on to, to denote this uh, in, in the rest of chapter number 4. Uh, or, excuse me, in uh, chapter number 7, I believe it is. But God will do everything he can try to reach us before he has to chastise us. We've got a loving God in that way. You see that same love for, with a parent or child. In fact, sometimes that love is trampled upon, taken advantage of. I've been in Walmart. You ever gone to Walmart? A few? One or two of you? You know, you know that lady. You know that lady 
And oftentimes she's trying her best. I'm not being judgmental. But you know that lady who, who is probably a little more long-suffering than she ought to be. I mean, their child literally has got a Walmart, Walmart attendant by the hair, dragging them down an aisle, has set fire to the pharmaceutical section, and is wielding a machine gun. And they're saying, now, if you don't stop, I'm going to whip you. And it's the 480th time they've said it. God says, I'm not going to be that way. He says, I've sent judgment after judgment after judgment and you've continued to progress further and further away. He says, just keep sinning. My daddy used to say it this way, you just keep it up. That's <laughs> what God's saying. You just keep it up, because there's a judgment that is coming. Skip down chapter number 5. We see, first, Israel's judgment certain. Second, Israel's sins denounced. And you can go through and see all the things that, that he does. Um, and, and the rest of chapter 4, actually, is where he gives that. He, he, there are seven times the Lord says, I've done something. He says in verse 6, I have given to you cleanness of teeth. In verse 7, I've withholding the rain from you. Uh, verse uh, number 9, I've smitten you with blasting. In verse number 10, I've sent among you the pestilence after the manner of Egypt. And you know what every, every single statement is finished with? Yet have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Over and over and over again, God says it. Yet ye have not returned unto me, saith the Lord. And so he finally gives them up. And that's what we see in verse... I hate, I'm sorry, we're skipping around. But look at verse 12, chapter 4. That's what it says. He says, therefore. You know what that word therefore means? It means because of this. Because I've judged you and you've not turned. Because I've judged you and you've not turned. Because I've judged you and you've not turned. Because you will not return to me. Therefore, thus will I do unto thee, O Israel... And because I will do this unto thee, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. He says, you've met with famine, you've met with pestilence, you've met with all my judgments, now you're going to meet with me. There's no. And by the way, he's talking about his people. So easy to read this, and we hear that preached. I mean, I've heard it preached as a gospel message. Prepare to meet thy God. And, And there is a truth there. I mean, certainly the lost man will meet God. He ought to prepare to meet God. But don't miss the last two words of verse 12. Oh, Israel, if there'll come a place in my personal life where I've sinned and done wrong, where eventually God says, you've dealt with everything else and now you're going to deal with me, I ought to take heed to that. Because there's no worse whipping than when the Father gives you a whipping. Do you have a daddy like that? I had a daddy like that. I mean, it was bad. <laughs> he never beat me, but he made me think I got beat a time or two, you know. I don't know, there's portions of just blacked out. But he, uh, it was bad when Mama whipped me. But the worst part about Mama whipping me was I knew that Daddy was going to whip me. And when we, when he whipped me, it wasn't, listen carefully, it wasn't the, the swift, sporadic, and annoying whipping that Mama gave me. You know, a wise man once said this, that the, that the mother is the Holy Ghost of the home. You ever heard that before? The mother is the Holy Ghost of the home. And my mother whipped me kind of like the Holy Ghost whipped me. The second I did something wrong. That's how the Holy Ghost is. The second you do something wrong, you sin. And he doesn't come into your life like a wrecking ball usually. It's just a constant guiding hand. You've sinned, you've done wrong, and you need to do right. But my father, when he whipped me, it was slow, it was deliberate. I had time between every between every swift landing of that leather belt that said Fred on it. I had time to think about what I had done. In the same way, when the Father deals with you, sometimes it's not quick, sharp, and annoying. Sometimes it's slow, deliberate, and contemplative. Give you time to think about. Chapter number 5, and we've got to kind of hurry. <laughs> we see Israel's doom lamented. Hear ye this word which I take up against you, even a lamentation, O house of Israel. Now this is sort of strange, because it's out of the character of the book of Amos. Remember, the book of Amos, up to this point, has been cold, calculated. 
It's just cause and consequence. You've done this, so I'm going to do this. And like laying out a logical argument, like someone would look at Amos and say, that's not fair for God to do that. Amos says, no, because God did this, and you wouldn't listen. He did this, and you wouldn't listen. And he gives a cold, calculated argument. But now it's almost like Hosea bursts onto the scene. It's like the heartbeat of God just thumps louder. And he says, I can't judge you without it breaking my heart. The virgin of Israel is fallen. She shall no more rise. She is forsaken upon her land. There is none to raise her up. You know your Bible history. You know that's true. When the Assyrians destroyed the northern ten tribes of Israel, they didn't take them into captivity like, like Nebuchadnezzar did with Judah, the southern two tribes. They came in and destroyed them. They scattered them across their empire, and they intermarried with the remainder of the Israelites. That's why that, that the Samaritan woman uh, said to Christ, Ye being a Jew, speak to me, charter Samaritan. They were considered half-breeds to the Jews. They were half-Gentile, half-Jew. That was because when, when Tiglath-Pileser came in uh, and began the campaign, Sennacherib finished it, that, that they, they intermarried uh, Assyrians with the Israelites. They were utterly destroyed. For thus saith the Lord God, the city that went out by a thousand shall leave an hundred. And that which went forth by an hundred shall leave ten to the house of Israel. For thus saith the Lord unto the house of Israel, Seek ye me, and ye shall live. That word me is emphatic. I'm not a big Greek scholar, but I, I do know that that word is emphatic. He's not just saying, Seek ye me. He's saying, Seek ye me. Don't seek the, the idolatrous golden calf at Bethel. Don't run to the shrines at Dan and Gilgal and Tabor and, 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 and Penuel. Seek me, and me alone is hope. Let me say this. When God is chastening and judging us, we have a tendency like a little child does to seek to turn away. But you know what even my little boy does? He's little, man. I mean, and you know what he does? When we whip him, and don't, don't get all twisted up, you don't whip him now, you got to beat him later. As long as long, I heard that, Linda. Go eat that pork loin. When they're when they're old enough to have a will, then they're old enough to have a will to be broken. And before his will is broken, he'll fight. I, I held that boy for thirty minutes the other day. Him just scream, just fighting. You saw he's too late. You you should have had to held him. Like holding an angry badger. But when that will was finally broken, in the best words he could muster, he looked at me and tried to say, I'm sorry. See, until his will was broken, he didn't want me. Because all he saw was the chastisement. Once his will was broken, he could see the love behind the chastisement. And he wanted his dad. In the same way, the Lord says, when you're broken... Even if you're scattered across the lands, even if there will be no more nation of Israel as you've remembered it, there in the deepest, darkest recesses of Gentile darkness and pagan uh, persecution, seek me, and I'll show grace upon you. Let me tell you something. It's good to know. It's good to know that even if even if the pieces can't be put back together, God still loves the pieces. He goes on through, uh, and we don't have time to go through all of it. But in verse 16, he uses this terminology. Therefore, the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord saith thus, Wailing shall be in all the streets, and they shall say in all the highways, Alas, alas, they shall call the husbandmen to mourning, and such as are skillful of lamentation to wailing, and in all vineyards shall be wailing, for I will pass through thee, saith the Lord. Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. For what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. See, these people just a few chapters earlier were saying, Yeah, Amos, that's right. Yeah, get Damascus, get Gaza, get Tyre. And he says, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. He says, Don't rejoice over their judgment, because your judgment is coming. And he uses that terminology. Now, we've talked before about how that has dispensational implications, prophetic implications. The day of the Lord, it, it, it speaks of immediate judgment, but it also looks beyond immediate judgment and looks to the time when God's going to judge the world, uh, when Christ returns in power and in glory, and also the nation of Israel will be judged at that time. He describes it this way, as if a man did flee from a lion, 
and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. He says, the day of the Lord, it's going to be like you met a lion in the highway. You ran from the lion, ran right into the pathway of a bear, turned to flee from him, made it into your house, thought everything was okay, leaned against the wall to rest, put your hand up, and a serpent bit you and killed you. He says, there's no escape from the judgment of God. Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even very dark and no brightness in it. Chapter number 7, you can go on if you want to through chapter number 6. He continues to denounce all of their sins and, and to speak of their unrighteousness. But in chapter number 7, the tone changes again. First he commands them to look around and see God's judgment. Then he commands them to look within and see the corruption. And then he commands them to look ahead and see the end coming. And he speaks, there are five visions of judgment mentioned in the next two chapters. Now, I'm not going to go through all of them. Well, I'll touch on them, but I'm not, we don't have time to just deal with every single one of them. The first three verses, he speaks of a plague of locusts that is coming. Uh, we know that a plague of locusts had just passed through in the day of Joel prior to this. There's another plague of locusts that is coming. And he says in verse number two, Pass ye unto Calma, that's an Assyrian cornerstone stronghold city, and see. And from thence go ye down to Hamath, the great, and then go down to Gath of the Philistines. You know why that Gath is not mentioned with the Philistine cities? Because Uzziah had already destroyed Gath, and it was no longer a principal Philistine city. He says, Be they better than these kingdoms, or their border greater than your border? He says, If they can be destroyed, you can be destroyed. And uh, uh, that's in chapter number 6. In chapter number 7, uh, he says in the first three verses, he speaks of this locust plague. Thus saith the Lord God, thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, he formed grasshoppers in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth, and lo, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. Uh, at that time, it was common for the, the first crop of hay and, and crop of things to be taken as a tax. It was called the king's mowing, and the second crop was what they would keep for themselves. He says there's going to be nothing left for you. Down in verse number 4, uh, he speaks of a great fire that would be coming, or a drought, a, a desert fire, a drought that would be so fierce that it would start fires, wildfires. He says, Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, the Lord God called to contend by fire, and it devoured the great deep, and did eat up a part. And that's figurative language. He's saying it was so terrible, it's like it dried up the sea and took a part of the promised land of Israel. Down in verse number 7, and I, I've got my little... Uh, here. I think most folks will know what a plumb line is. But it says in verse number 7, Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord stood upon a wall made by a plumb line with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said unto me, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, A plumb line. Then said the Lord, Behold, I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not again pass by them any more. Now, a plumb line... Basically, a string with a weight tied at the bottom. It is not pieces of yarn with a bicycle pump, but that's all I have. The purpose of a plumb line is if a builder is trying to frame something that is square, he wants to make sure that it's not leaning to the right or to the left, to the front or to the back, and he will... What have I done here? All right. That's all right. I can, I can do it. He'll take a plumb line and he'll nail or hold up the top of that plumb line to the top beam, and then he'll allow the bottom to drop all the way down to make sure that the top beam and the bottom beam are in line with each other. You know what God is saying? He's saying, I'm trying to see if it's the same down here as it is up here. I'm trying to make sure that that which is below is in line with that which is above. Remember the Hebrew writer said that uh, everything in the tabernacle was patterned after heavenly things. Everything in the tabernacle, there was a heavenly representative of it. God says this, I'm going to drop a plumb line from my throne room. And I'm going to see if what's going on down there lines up with what's going on up here. We know that it didn't. We know that it was an idolatrous false temple. And God is saying that I am just in what I'm doing because you don't line up with my standard. You have a narrative parenthetical here in verse number 10 uh, down to verse number 17. 
says then Amos I, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos hath conspired against thee in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus, say, thus Amos saith, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive out of their own land. Also Amos I said unto Amos, O thou seer, go, flee thee away into the land of Judah, and there eat bread, and prophesy there. But prophesy not again any more at Bethel, for it is the king's chapel, and it is the king's court. Sort of the ministry of religion, if you want to call him that, the high priest in Bethel, calls Amos to task, and he accuses him of treason before Jeroboam. He says that he is prophesying that you're going to die by the sword. Well, that was a lie. The prophecy actually was that the house of Jeroboam would die by the sword. But he says he's trying to, uh, to uh, sabotage our country through his wicked words. What are you going to do about it? It's assumed that Jeroboam probably looked at Amaziah and said, you handle it. So Amaziah turns, looks at Amos, and he says, go back to Judah and prophesy there. Eat bread in peace. Go to people that are going to listen and tell them about it. Then answered Amos and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was an herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said unto me, Go, prophesy unto my people Israel. Now therefore hear thou the word of the Lord. Thou sayest, Prophesy not against Israel, and drop not thy word against the house of Isaac. Therefore thus saith the Lord, Thy wife shall be an harlot in the city, and thy sons and thy daughters shall fall by the sword, and thy land shall be divided by line, and thou shalt die in a polluted land, and Israel shall surely go into captivity forth of his land. He says, I didn't sign up for this. God signed me up for this. He says, I, I wasn't raised to be a prophet. I was a farmer. I was a gatherer of sycamore. You know what that word gatherer literally means? Only poor folks would eat sycamore fruit. And uh, it took forever for sycamore fruit to, to ripen. And so gatherers of sycamore fruit would go through and they would, they would pinch and bruise the sycamore fruit so that it would ripen quicker. Uh, basically, Amos is saying, I was in the field at pinching sycamore fruit. That's where I was. God came and found me and sent me here. He says, if I'm willing to do this, it's not because of you, it's because of the Lord. I'll not keep quiet. And because you've tried to send me home, he says, your wife's going to be a harlot, a prostitute in this city. Your children are going to be dead. You're going to be dead. Your land's going to be sold and divided. And the land of Israel's going into captivity. We know this is true because it was the word of the Lord, and it did come true for Amaziah. Then we go back to these five judgments. It says in verse number 8, Thus saith the Lord God, or thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, A basket of summer fruit. Then said the Lord unto me, The end is come upon my people of Israel. I will not again pass by them any more. Now you say, well, what's he talking about? Well, some of you know exactly what that's talking about. It says a basket, so that means the fruit's no longer on the tree. It's been plucked and placed. What he's saying is this. It looks real good. Let me ask you ladies something. Well, and you men too. How long does it take you to take that fruit, that banana, it's so pretty and yellow, it's not green anymore, and, and the grapes look plump, and maybe if you got strawberries, they look nice. You put them all in a basket, and you set them there on the coffee table, or you set them on the counter, and it looks beautiful. How long does it take? No. <laughs> How long does it take till the nanner is brown, till the grapes are shriveled, till the strawberries, the gnats are getting to them? doesn't take long. Now, can you take those, put them back in the refrigerator, and the grapes pump back up, and the nanners turn yellow again, and... And the strawberries, the gnats go away, and they start to look fresh. No. No, once it starts, there's no stopping. He says, Amos, the same way with a basket of summer fruit, my people of Israel, they may look good now. They may, they may look like everything's okay, but decay and destruction are coming. Chapter number 9, he says this, the very last of these visions of judgment. I saw the Lord standing upon the altar. And he said, Smite the lintel of the door that the posts may shake, and cut them in the head, all of them. I will slay the last of them with the sword. He that fleeth of them shall not flee away, 
he that escapeth of them shall not be delivered. Though they dig into hell, thence shall mine hand take them. Though they climb up to heaven, thence will I bring them down. Though they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, I will search and take them out thence. Though they be hid from my sight in the bottom of the sea, thence will I command the serpent, and he shall bite them. Though they go into captivity before their enemies, thence will I command the sword, and it shall slay them. And I will set mine eyes upon them for evil and not for good. And the Lord God of hosts is he that toucheth the land, and it shall melt. All that dwell therein shall mourn, and it shall rise up wholly like a flood, and shall be drowned as by the flood of Egypt. The last vision he sees is the Lord himself. But he's not on the other side of the altar. He's standing upon the altar. It's the idolatrous altar at Bethel. It had been prophesied that that altar would be destroyed already. That did come to pass uh, within about 40 or 50 years of what Amos says here. It had been prophesied many, many years before that. And what Amos sees is the Lord himself standing to destroy that which was the root cause of their iniquity. You know, sometimes what we think is helping us is really the thing that's hurting us. And they thought that altar was their meeting place with God. But it wasn't. It was evidenced by the sin that was in their life. It was evidenced by the fact that their altar and manner of worship did not line up with what God had prescribed. And let me just say this. Everything may look good in our lives. Sometimes we look at people and their lives look pretty good. We know they're living in sin, but their lives look pretty good. But if we could see what Amos saw, we'd see the Lord standing upon the altar of their iniquity, just waiting to smite the doorposts thereof, waiting to tear down the altar. You say, preacher, should that make us happy? Should that make us feel good because we've warned them? No, it should make us mourn. It should grieve us to know that God does judge sin, even the sin of his own people. And judgment does begin at the house of God. It should give us a compassion that grips our heart to go to those people, reach unto those people, plead with those people, pray for those people. Because it's as though the Lord is standing above them waiting to strike the chastising blow. The book of Amos ends on a note of hope, as many of the minor prophets do. He says in verse number 11, In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen, close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and, all of, the, and of all the heathen which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him that soweth seed, and the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. He says it's bad, it's going to get bad, and it's going to get worse. It says, but my promises are still true. Has Israel been through the threshing floor in history? I believe they have. There's been no more hated, no more persecuted people than the Jewish people. They're still the most hated and persecuted people in this world. Hard for us to fathom because for, I don't know, 40-something presidents, we've always been their ally up until now. You know? And we've always been taught. I mean, we see. And, and in fact, a lot of times I always notice it when he's wearing it. But Brother Ted has a pin that has the American flag and the Jewish flag with the Star of David on it. You know, I've grown up seeing that. That's been normal to me. But don't think just because here in America there's still some favor for the Jewish people. Don't think it's like that all over this world. Now, there's places in Europe that a Jew can't walk down the street without getting spit upon. In Europe. You know, enlightened Europe that our, our government wants us to model ourselves after. That the Hollywood stars tell us we're ignorant for not being like. The Jews are a hated people. But don't think just because they're cast down now, don't think that God's promises are not still true. There's coming today the Lord will rear up the tabernacle of David that has fallen. It's not saying that he's going to build again the tabernacle. What it's saying is that worship, that true worship that David had in the tabernacle, is going to be a reality again one of these days. One day there will be one upon the throne of David. When that day comes, it says that the, the plowman will overtake the reaper. Before they can gather the harvest out of the field, they'll be planting another one. There's coming a day God will restore all of these things. <coughs> and he says, I, I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel. And they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards drink the wine thereof, they shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. 
I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. Let me tell you something right now. It looks bleak for Israel. It always looks bleak for Israel. But there's coming a day when all the armies of the world won't be able to pull them up out of their land again. Judgment is sure, but the promises of God are sure. The question I think we need to ask ourselves is this. Is there cause for God to judge me in my life? Oh, now don't get, don't get the over-spiritual answer of saying, well, of course, preacher, we all have things in our life. You know, you know, the people that say we all have things in our life, you know why they say that? Because they don't want to think about the things that are in their life. I mean, we can be right with God. I'm not saying perfect, but we can be right with God. And we've got this thing of saying now, well, we all have things in our life because we don't want to be right with God. If we're not right with God, there is judgment coming. Oh, he won't judge me, preacher. He loves me. He'll judge you because he loves you. But just remember, when that time comes and the judgment hand of God has been heavy upon you, now all the pieces are lying there broken. Remember that he still loves the pieces. And there's still the promises of God to lean and depend on.